Wild Lives by Phonographic. Hey, I'm Rochelle. Welcome to Wild Lives. Today we're going to have a little bit of a chat with my mate Julia Summerling. Now, Jules has spent the past 20 years or so working as an underwater photographer and filmmaker. You've probably seen her footage in docos for the BBC, the Discovery Channel, Channel 4 England, National Geographic Channel, as well as Channel 7 and 10 Down Under. Now, while she's juggling her own filmmaking projects, Jules works as an expedition photographer for a dive operator in the Great Barrier Reef, as well as for the Silent World Foundation. Over the past two decades, her work has taken her right around the world, filming everything from sperm whales eating giant squid near the Marianas Trench to new shipwreck discoveries at Pitcairn Island. And of the 10,000 dives she's done, at least 9,000 of those have been solo, which makes her an actual factual OG explorer. I first met Jules on a dwarf minke whale expedition on the Great Barrier Reef a few years ago where she introduced me to one of the world's most pristine marine environments. Sprawling 2,300 kilometres along the east coast of Australia, the Great Barrier Reef is the largest coral reef system in the world. With an area of more than 340,000 square kilometres, it's bigger than the United Kingdom, Switzerland and Holland combined, or about half the size of Texas. The reef received World Heritage status in 1981 and it's famously rich in biodiversity with 1,500 species of fish, 300 species of hard corals, 4,000 mollusk species and 400 types of sponge. Plus there are more than 30 types of whale and dolphin including sperm whales, dwarf minkies and dolphins such as Indo-Pacific humpbacks, spinners and Australian snub fins along with a couple of thousand dugongs. Now, Julia Summerling calls this wild playground her office, and over the years she's had some extraordinary experiences there. I'm stoked to introduce you to her so she can tell you all about them. Hey, Julia, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. It's great to uh, be speaking to you again. You've been working on the reef for 20 years. Uh, that's I can't believe where the time's gone. <laughs> You've had some phenomenal experiences in that time. At the moment, you rub shoulders with all kinds of sharks on the reef, including wobbegongs, hammerheads and tiger sharks. I know I've definitely missed a few because there's more than 90 different shark species in the area. Do you have a favourite species of shark on the reef? Well, actually, this is a good question because there is a shark that a lot of people don't talk about or know about. Uh, as well as they, you know, they hear it talk about bull sharks, um, grey reef sharks, hammerheads, that kind of thing. There is, a, there is a shark. Well, it's actually sort of a cross between a ray and a shark. Most people know it as a shovel nose shark. It is actually a shovel nose ray, or people call it a guitar shark. And oh. it's quite a really unusual looking animal. It's fins and tail, very, very sharky like, but its head looks like it's sort of been stuck in a steamroller and it's quite flat and they're quite large they can get up to about seven or eight feet in length so they can get up to a good size and you know they got really high uh, dorsal fins and a really high tail and they are just one of the most magnificent and beautiful animals that I encounter underwater they're quite rare so we don't see a lot of them and they pop up in sort of sandy locations. Uh, and when I see them, they just I just feel so happy, you know, just because I do see a lot of sharks. And the ones that really interest me the most are the ones that look quite unusual and, 
and just have this beautiful shape. And they look like straight out of the dinosaur era. So what's been your most memorable shark encounter on the reef? Well, for me, as I mentioned before, it's always the unusual sharks that really capture my interest. And I get a lot of, on my, the vessel I work on, I work for my ball dive expeditions, I get uh, a lot of interesting characters and people and who are really, they really do want to come out into the coral sea and see some really great shark activity. And I, I remember one time I, I had this Russian guy on board, he was the tour leader, and he's just you know, a real character, a lovely guy. And he says, Julia, I want to see a big shark. Can you show me a big shark? <laughs> and and I said to him, well, listen, if you go off and get me a plastic bottle, I can use the plastic bottle underwater and we can make some sounds and maybe attract a nice big shark for oh. you. And he's like, oh, okay, I got to see what I got. And he comes back a few minutes later with this little tiny bottle that's like the ones that they give you on the plane. It's really, really tiny. Now, when you use a plastic bottle to make sounds to attract sharks, you know, they need to be at least a litre size or something like this. So I looked at the bottle and I said, well, you know, Sergey, what they say, little bottle, big shark. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> you know, because I really want him to have a great time and show him the best thing I can find. And if that's the only thing I've got, well, that's what I'm going to go with, you know. So we go to this dive site and it's really cold and it's a regular site for seeing, you know, good sharks and big sharks, that kind of thing. And I've got this little plastic bottle and I start scrunching it around in the water to make these sounds. It kind of sounds a bit like a lobster or a crayfish, you know, cracking its tail. So the sharks love that. They come in and there we are. We're in this ripping current. It's really strong current. And he's so keen to a shark, to see a shark. And I think, I don't know if we're going to see anything. I'm cracking this bottle away. Then I just saw this thing move in the distance. Like, I'm like, what on earth is that? Unlike anything I've seen before, the sort of gliding shape. And I looked closely and what it was was a very rare pelagic thresher shark, which we don't – well, this was the first one I'd ever seen. But what's really interesting about this shark and really different is half of its body is tail. So, and its tail is not like not regular sharks. Its tail moves like a ribbon through the water. So, if you if it's three meters long, a meter and a half of that is the tail. Oh, so, wow. it's a really spectacular looking shark, and it was so curious. It, we were sitting down at on top of a ridge at thirty meters, and it just came in at really slowly and circled in front of us several times. So, we must have had it for about five minutes. And it was just the most beautiful sight and most wonderful sight because there's so few places in the world where divers encounter these sharks and a lot of people spend a lot of money to go and see these sharks. And here I was seeing one that I didn't even know that we had in our waters Uh, and it just totally just blew me away. And then, you know, I had a very happy Russian next to me <laughs> who could not believe it. So I, th- I think I held on to that plastic bottle for about six <laughs> months, actually. It was really um, quite quite something to see that and to share that with somebody. That was a few years ago. I think in 20 years that I've been diving this site, so I've probably seen three. Wow. 
You actually have taken some incredible photos of turtles over the years as well. The reef's actually home to six of the seven species of marine turtles, so you've spoiled for choice with the different species you get to encounter. But has there been one turtle encounter, or maybe more than one, that has really stood out to you over the years? I've got quite a few special turtle encounters, but they all do seem to come from the same dive site, and it's a small group of turtles. So up on the ribbon reefs, there's a dive site called Lighthouse Bommie, Mm. and that's a pinnacle that rises up from uh, about 25 metres up to about 5 metres, and it acts as a real cleaning station for a lot of different resident turtles. And they're all quite used to divers and, you know, they're just sort of in their own world. But we're just part of their, their world to them these days. And, but they don't really mind us at all. And, and some of them are really good friends, I think. So some of them I've known, uh, one of them, probably one of my favourite ones I've known for about 12 years oh, now. Oh, wow. So the turtles crack me up, you know. I mean, probably one of the funniest instances with one of these turtles is just even last week where – I had a turtle that had a really big jellyfish up near the surface and it's covered in all these little juvenile fish as well. You know, it's that classic rare case where you get these wonderful shots of this turtle coming up and munching on a jellyfish in this beautiful light and it makes absolutely gorgeous photographs. Now, because I had seen it from, a you know, a 20-metre depth, Uh, I could see what was going on. I knew I had to get the shot, but obviously I couldn't come up to the surface. So I sat underneath this turtle while he was eating his jellyfish and did my safety stop for five minutes, just off-gassing a little bit before I came shallower. And while I think some of my bubbles disturbed it or something and it just knocked into it, I didn't accidentally did that. And he swam off and he got really nervous. But then he was looking around and he could see me sitting there and he came up to me going, Where's my jellyfish? (laughs) And he's just staring at me and he's looking around and he couldn't find his jellyfish. And I I, I can't, I mean, this is the most ridiculous story ever. And I was laughing so much because he couldn't find it. He, He just didn't know where to look. And so I got my finger and I pointed above his head and I'm like, yeah, it's up there, you silly turtle. (laughs) And he actually turned, I don't know, he, she, it. I think it's actually a girl. It actually turned its head and looked up and saw the jellyfish. So it actually <laughs> followed my hands and fingers and, you know, it could see that I was pointing to it. And so it went up and started munching away. Well, I still had a few minutes on um, my safety stop, so I'm still sitting there. And the same thing happened again. My bubbles went up. It sort of, like, disturbed the turtle and he went off and damn, I've done it again. But the turtle again, once he pulled himself together, or she, it's actually a girl, uh, once the turtle had pulled itself together, it comes back to me again and and it's looking at me going, what have you done with my jellyfish? (laughs) (laughs) And and I just, I did the same thing again. I pointed with my arm and my finger and it's like, mate, it's up there. It's over there. And it, turned its head again and it went back to its jellyfish. Now it's like for the first time ever, it felt like I was having a conversation with the turtle. <laughs> like we actually know each other enough, you know, because I have known this turtle for quite some time. It knew that I was telling it where its jellyfish was. 
it, which, you know, I just think is hilarious because I've never heard of anything like that. Turtles aren't known for being the brightest animals. But this one certainly knew what I was doing when I was pointing for it. So I thought that was really quite funny, actually. <laughs> I literally was talking to my regulator, having a conversation with this turtle. Do you think he so, was accusing you of eating it for a while before you I don't know. <laughs> it's almost like you, you come over to me with these wide eyes, that question on his face, like, where is it? <laughs> I love this turtle to bits. I absolutely love it. And years ago, it was a star of uh, one of the IMAX films. And it was 3D Under the Sea, which was filmed by Howard Hall, Howard and Michelle Hall. Mm. And it was one of the first great underwater IMAX films. And I was very lucky to go and when this came out to see it on the really large IMAX screen in Melbourne, the seven-storey high IMAX screen. And I turned up for the opening and there were 500 children, school kids there, and I'm like, oh, God, really? Do I have to watch this movie with 500 (laughs) kids? Ah. Anyway, it actually turned out to be quite amazing because this turtle is one of the main stars of that film and, you know, when the turtle sort of lunges its head forward towards the audience in 3D, you know, all the kids would go, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's so cool. That's my friend up there. I know him. <laughs> so that's kind of cute. That's the, the, awesome. the turtles, some of our turtles are quite famous. So that's, that's a cool. pretty special one. What other yeah. underrated species do you find on the reef? Like, do you have a soft spot for any that you think don't get enough of the spotlight? Yeah, I do have a real soft spot for the potato cods, mainly because I've known the individuals for so long. And I think they, in a way they are underrated because most people see them as fish. But I see them as really intellectual and probably some of the smartest animals I know. I'd probably put their intelligence up there with a dog. You know, they really never cease to amaze me. You know, they do these incredible changes in their patterns to communicate with each other and they have this incredible like hierarchical system and everyone in the cod community you know the different sort of places that we see potato cods is not normally just one they can be up to about six or eight they really do have their spots and they have they got their boundaries and lines and they seem to be rules and it's really fascinating watching them how they interact with each other they will change the colour of their skin to communicate with one another. If they are having a territorial dispute, the larger one will go completely slaty grey. They tell the smaller ones, hey, this is my territory, get out. Mm. Uh, and they can change that colour right in front of your eyes. And a lot of people don't realise that. They'll also do, you know, other colour changes when they're feeling a little bit randy. They'll actually go completely snowy white. You know, and the black spots disappear altogether and it's like this peppery sort of sprinkle all over them. And if you see that, that means that they're, you know, ready to get it on. (laughs) And you want to give them a wide berth because uh, it can be quite violent. It's like two deer charging each other, you know, and they they do it at top speed. So uh, it it can be (laughs) really quite – and they'll hit each other and the sound it makes. It's just incredible and because they do look really cutesy and like lots of character and these pretty faces, uh, people are quite shocked when they see that and certainly not expecting it. 
but it is uh, and but then they all do this lovely you know sort of dancing around together and and they'll schmooze for a while and then they'll smash each other again i mean <laughs> modern love yeah but but it's it's really interesting because i've encountered some cods that i know have never seen divers before and this is probably the thing i find most interesting because they do not treat us with as like we're any threat to them they'll readily come and approach you and come really close just to find out what you are i mean one of the one of the most bizarre things i've ever seen with a potato cod is that we were doing a safety drill on board the boat and we had a, a missing diver scenario and one of the crew jumped in and went and lay face down on the sand to try and be dead and we all had to go and find him run a trail and do a rescue. Now, I was one of the safety divers and looked doing the search and I found um, the diver face down in the sand. But how I found him was there was a potato cod that had its nose underneath that diver and was trying to roll him over. Oh. Now, <laughs> I could not believe that, you know, but the potato cod clearly knew that divers don't lie face down in the sand for long periods of time and, um, was because they're really big, you know, they can be up to two meters long. It was trying to wedge himself underneath the diver and roll him over. So that that blows me away. <laughs> That's amazing. That would have been phenomenal to see. That, Very jarring yeah. too. Like, what are you doing, dude? <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> they they just really they have a lot more intelligence than what people give them credit. Mm. Now, you also get to see heaps of different rays up there. There are 35 different types of rays mm. on the reef. This is an area where Steve Irwin lost his life, um, mm. but obviously that was a freak occurrence. Mm. You have had so many encounters with different rays. Tell us about some of your favourites or at least one of your favourites. Well, listen, I just got to say I've got a real soft spot for rays. I don't know what it is about them. I get, it might have something to do with the fact that they're so big, but they're also really, really gentle creatures. They're not aggressive. I don't find them aggressive in any way. And if you, uh, you know, move really slowly and don't spook them or anything like that, you can spend a long time with them up close and and that's probably one of the greatest things about working in the ocean is that you can spend a lot of time with marine animals and if you sort of learn their behavior you can actually get them quite comfortable with your presence and uh you as long as you don't show them any kind of threat and you can have firstly you can get absolutely stunning photos of them because they're so photogenic because they're so big um, but they're just really amazing animals. But I just have to say, I absolutely do love spending time with manta rays. And uh, we do see quite a few of them at different times of the year. Some of the ones are the same ones that come back. We don't see a whole lot of re-sightings, but we do see, we have had a few that we've hooked up with a Project Manta with ID shots and they tell us that they've been seen on several of our sites over the years. You know, we, do, we occasionally get some really incredible mating behaviour and uh, that's where you get a long chain of manta rays all chasing each other around and just they do that beautiful dance in the water where they're circling each other and, 
you know, they might have five males chasing one female and they would just be spinning around in the water. And so long as, you know, no, everybody does the right thing, you know, they'll be there for four or five hours. It's encounters like that that are just fantastic. Another thing that's pretty freaking amazing about the reef is that it's a dwarf minke aggregation site. In fact, it's the only known one in the world. You've been shooting the the aggregation for years. Over the years, have you come to know individuals? Have you seen like repeat visitors or you just kind of meet a new favourite every year? There are a couple of uh, whales that I've been encountering every year. I, I, I go back through some of my footage sometimes and I work with the um, – Dwarf Minky Whale Project as well, and we do get re-sightings. And, and there is one whale that I know I've have been having encounters with, and I think the earliest in sighting that I've had with her is uh, 2009. Oh. And I think I've seen her near – I think I've missed about one or two years that I didn't see her. Like I saw her last year, but the two years before that I didn't. And there's some years I will see her several times throughout a season. And I've seen her, so if it's 2009, I must have seen her about eight or nine times over the years. But how I work out it's this whale is is certainly the behaviour. You know, the first time this whale approaches in the water, it comes within two metres of me. (laughs) And I go, oh, hello, you must be an old friend. <laughs> on big encounters, you know, they'll start off with whales in the distance, maybe 20 metres away, and then after half an hour, it might come down to 15 metres, and then after an hour, it might be 10 metres. And by the end of any, you know, by the end of some encounters, they'll be coming within one or two metres <laughs> of people in the water. Awesome. But there are some whales that I know, there's at least three or four of them, their first pass will be pretty much in your face. <laughs> and I'll, I'll have to look. I'm like, oh, I have to check for that scar or, you know, or look for that marking on the on the side or did I see the left side of the whale because they're, they're different markings on each side. So sometimes it takes a while to work out which whale it is. But, you know, and then you go, oh, you'll see a scar that you recognise. Oh, gosh, it's that whale. Okay. <laughs> well, and then when that happens, you know, I basically tell all the other people in the water, guys, you don't want to get out of the water now. This is, we're in for a real treat, you know. (laughs) What about the funniest moment you've had on the reef? And that couldn't be with any of the animals that you've swum with. Probably some of the funniest things that I see on the reef make me laugh out loud. You know, I've been choking through my snorkel. I've actually been snorkeling with minky whales and Mm. we do get, Oh, a lot of well-known photographers come out on board and, and try and get those all-important, wonderful whale shots that I always dreamed about. And on long and big encounters, you know, every you know, you might have about five or six photographers on the line. They often can be really, really serious uh, because it's costing them a lot of money to be there and it's so much pressure on to get their shots. And I don't know if the whales see this, right? But, <laughs> you know, you have someone looking in one direction and the whales know which direction you're looking in because they love to sneak up behind people. <laughs> and I've had one of the funniest things. I've had a few, this happen a few times where I've got a photographer who's out on the, on the minky line for hours and he's looking in the wrong direction and the minky whale has come up behind him, opened its mouth wide <laughs> and I've gotten photos. <laughs> <laughs> this person with this whale with their mouth wide open and they're looking in the wrong direction. They are really funny. 
On March 23, 1911, the SS Yongala was on its 99th voyage from Melbourne to Cairns. Aboard were 122 people, along with a racehorse called Moonshine and a Red Lincoln Bull. When the luxury passenger steamship was off Cape Bowling Green near Townsville, a cyclone hit and she ran into a submerged rock, sinking without a trace and drowning everyone on board. The Yongala wasn't discovered again until 1958, when she was found lying on her starboard side around 30 metres below the surface. Today, more than 100 years later, the 109 metre long wreck forms an artificial reef. It's covered in coral and its incredible biodiversity makes it one of the world's most sought-after dive spots. The SS Yongala wreck is one of your favourite places in the world to dive. Why is it so special to you? That, that's a really good question. It's got some of the most incredible megafauna of any of the dive sites I've ever been to in the world. But not only that. Now, I, it's the, what you think about when you go and dive the Yongala. I mean, sorry, the Yongala sank in 1911. It was sank by a cyclone and uh, everybody on board died. 122 people died and a racehorse. The ship wasn't seen. It was lost until the 1950s and it was probably one of Australia's greatest disasters. And it's quite incredible, you know, when you think about it, when you dive on that rack, not only is it one of the most beautiful dive sites in terms of the, the marine life that's there, the, the corals, the soft corals that are all over it, the big black corals, the amazing schools of fish. But out of this, you know, horrendous grief has come one of the most beautiful oases of life. Mm-hmm. And it's years ago I did a, a big filming project on the Yongala and I went back and interviewed some of their descendants. So I interviewed a, a guy who was um, like the great-grandson or the he was the grandson of one of the descendants. He was in his uh, – no, he was in his like – he was about 75, getting close to 80. And when I interviewed him like about his grandmother, I was really amazed about how powerful his connection, his family connection was with the wreck still Mm. and for the 100 year anniversary of the sinking of the Yongala what he did was he actually learnt to dive and on the 100 year anniversary on his fifth ever dive he took a bunch of lilies down to the wreck and and put it there for his grandmother and it's like what an amazing connection that he's got and how much you know, the people that sort of are descended from this wreck, how much history and how much loss and grief, you know, people experience for so many years. And yet when you go diving there and you jump in, you know, like the last time I was there, it was just 107 metres of fish. It was so thick with fish, you could not even see the wreck. It blows me away how beautiful and full of life this place is. And yet it's it was home to the one of Australia's most horrific disasters. So it's, um, it's pretty damn special. Mm. And when you combine history with the ocean, you just get even more depth. Ooh, there's the pun for the day. <laughs> <laughs> so your experiences in the reef have just furnished with you with a unique perspective on how it's surviving and 
and thriving and, and the challenges and all that sort of thing that it's dealing with at the moment. How can the average person help ensure the reef survives? Well, I think firstly, you know, the biggest thing is to really look at what affects the reef and like reefs all around the world are really suffering from stress from global warming and these things are certainly happening at a more faster rate than what they used to and if we're going to preserve our reefs we really need to look at the effects of slowing down the global warming which is a huge task, but it is a really, really hard time for reefs around the world. So also for the average person who really wants to do something for the reef, you I mean, for me, I, it's so important to think locally, to act globally. And I think that was a big term that was used in the 90s, 80s and 90s a lot. But I still think about it, you know, what can people do to do their part? And I think really contributing to using less plastics, using less products that have things like microbeads in it and less chemicals that produces, you know, less runoff, planting more trees along river systems. I think those things, you do that in your local area, the people around you start doing that as well. You will make a big difference over time because it is such a big planet and it's really daunting thinking about the big picture. I think it's really important to think about the small picture and and just start where you can and make a difference. Absolutely. Definitely sound advice there. On the topic of advice, you're one of my favourite photographers of all time, so it would be Aww. absolutely rude of me not to ask you. Give me three top tips for taking underwater photos. Look, my first one, and I've got to say this, and I push it to all of my underwater photography students, is just be a good diver first. I think one of the biggest things is that I get a lot of people who are learned to dive, they're new divers, and they get a camera in their hands and they forget everything they've learned about buoyancy, look, finding out where their buddy is, monitoring the air. And I think being a good diver, you know, having good buoyancy and good dive skills is so important. I can't stress that one enough. Mm. You know, I've seen people do terrible things to get that all-important image and it's so hard to watch, you know, or it's, it's pulling people off coral who were trying to photograph some kind of fish in the coral mm. and they've broken, you know, half the coral just to get the photos. Just infuriating. I think being a diver is really, really important. Mm. The second thing is understanding the marine life that you're seeing, like read about the life cycles of fish, how corals work, um, understand the marine life and learn about, you know, learn about fish behaviour and the kinds of things that they do to communicate with each other and how to read those signs. And like a person who taught me underwater photography many years ago, he told me, he said, if you want to photograph fish, you've got to think like a fish. If you can sort of anticipate a fish what it's going to do, well, then you can, you'll know where to be to photograph it. So I think that's essential as well. The third one is get in the water. <laughs> I, I've got to say this as well. This is quite funny. A lot of people spend a lot of money coming out to the reef to see the reef and take great photos. But sometimes they just really 
they just don't get in the water. They just want to sit on the boat and relax. It's like, well, go and have a holiday where you can relax, you know. <laughs> and it's quite funny because sometimes when I go on a holiday, I go off to shoot like rare or different animals, that kind of thing. And and I, and I think, gosh, why am I doing this on, the ho- on a holiday? I'm in the water five dives a day and I'm still doing this. It's not relaxing at all. But. That's the fire inside of you. You don't have a choice. You just actually have to do it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If you want to get good photos, you've got to put in the hard yards. You've got to spend long hours in the water to understand the way everything in the water is working. Good photos rarely come from luck. That is awesome advice, Jules. I can't wait to come back and put it into practice with you. I Um, can't wait to see you back here. Next year. I can't come this season, but hopefully next year. That's the plan. Yeah, it should be good. Thanks for listening. Now, if you'd like to see Julia's incredible work, and you know what? You actually have to. She's phenomenal. Look her up on Instagram with her full name, Julia Summerling, or under S-E-A-J-E-W-L-Z. See Jules. I'll put her links up on Fornographic.com as well, so you can check that out. And while you're there, you'll find more podcast episodes, wildlife news, and photography. In the meantime, happy wildlifing. Wild Lives by Fornographic. Check out our wildlife photo gallery at fornographic.com and on Instagram at fornographic. Mm-hmm.